The study of cryptozoology is littered with stories of anomalous giant birds, the Thunderbird of the Native Americans, the child-stealing mystery avians that plagued the American Midwest in the 1970s, and the various winged oddities collected by John Keel in his book The Mothman Prophecies. But imagine a mystery bird, a type of eagle larger than any currently accepted by science as inhabiting the continental United States, and now imagine that the animal was first described and recorded by the father of American ornithology, a man whose very name is synonymous with natural history and conservation in the US today. Such is the case with John James Audubon and the Washington Sea Eagle, a massive bird bearing the symbolic name of the great American revolutionary leader himself, shot and immortalised by a great man of art and science, only for all trace of this animal to disappear into a haze of half-confirmed sightings and official establishment scepticism. There's certainly a story here, and a weird one at that, but a study of the life of John James Audubon puts this remarkable mystery animal into much-needed context. And just as I was wrapping up research on this topic, I discovered that an extremely thorough new paper on the Washington Sea Eagle by ornithologist Matthew R. Halley had been very recently published, so his article, as well as a fantastic interview he gave on the American Birding podcast, went on to be invaluable sources for me and this episode, and I do recommend you check out both of these if you want to follow this story further. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and in each episode here at the Cabin in the Woods somewhere in Wild West Cork, I investigate stories of monsters, UFOs, hauntings and fringe beliefs. We're critical, not cynical here at the Cabin, so I'm extremely willing to give the Washington Sea Eagle every chance to be real, if only the evidence is good enough. It's a sunny early October morning, blue skies, yellow and red leaves, and green tea on the cabin porch. It's Bewley's, uh, being a bit of an Irish institution, founded in 1840 and famous for their Grafton Street Cafe up in Dublin, and they still make a decent cup of tea today. So grab yourself a brew and get ready for this episode, Crypto Ornithology, Washington Sea Eagle and the Life of John James Audubon. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Hello everybody, you are welcome to The Cabin once again, and of course you are welcome to this episode. So if you've been enjoying the series so far, I'd like to remind you that we have a vast back catalogue of great episodes, and we're really starting, I feel like we're getting into our groove at the moment, and we have a lot of great ones coming up as well, which I will let you know about at the end of the show. There are a few things you can do for us if you like and if you want to help the show. Firstly, wherever you're listening, please hit subscribe and please leave some reviews. That helps uh, other people be able to find us. And um, yeah, if there are any really nice ones, I'll be delighted to read them out on the show as well. If you're not into that, please, please, please do at least share one episode with one person who you think might like it. Because really, for all the other bits and pieces we do to try and promote, there's nothing like word of mouth. That is the most honest and the most realistic and the most helpful way to get the word out there. 
Next up, we finally have merch. So all you have to do to take a look is find us online. So we're on Twitter where we are at Strange Ireland or we're on Instagram at Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. All you have to do is click the link in the bio in either of those. And I've done a little bit of tech stuff to make it so that you can check out all the episodes or you can take another link to the shop. So we have mugs and we have t-shirts. They have our lovely logo on them with nice autumnal colours, sort of a mysterious forest in the background. And the mug also has the phrase critical, not cynical, written on the back to remind you uh, how you could sort of try and keep yourself in line while investigating strange stories as I like to do myself. Lastly, on the promotional front, folks, I am building up to a Patreon. So, yeah, I'm excited about this uh, and I have some good plans for it. And I've been working with some people who have helped me out in the show previously. I've got loads of really great ideas that will be climaxing, hopefully, on Halloween with our Halloween episode. So there might be a little something extra, a little something special there. Meantime, if you like following shows and you like following the Patreons and there are particular things you do or don't appreciate about them, I'd love to know. Ask, uh, get in touch with us and let us know what kind of things you have found useful or not useful when it comes to these things. And uh, that will help us out as well. So other sort of housekeeping things. I want to talk about one final thing before we get to our main subject. And that is, I have been re-watching the first series of True Detective. Now, I'm not somebody who goes in for these big uh, prestige TV shows. I, I'm aware that they're very good. I just don't have time for them. They're so long and they seem to require such a commitment, you know, so many hours of your life. And, you know, this goes back years. I, I never really got into uh, The Wire. I never got into The Sopranos, all those kind of early you know prestige tv shows and one of the only ones i got into was the first series of true detective i think i watched it on a plane going to america when it came out in or at least shortly afterwards in 2014 and it's always stuck with me it's one of those only shows that i really took the time to get into and i i love it i think it's amazing i've watched it several times over the years and i had a rewatch this week which about which I felt differently and which I want to briefly talk about because it does fit into some ongoing themes that we've had on this show. So just in case anybody doesn't know, in some ways it's a standard, you know, cop detective show. There's two cops. It's Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. They're both brilliant. They're very different characters. They're both on the same case, but they don't get along. Yada, yada, yada. All the usual cop stuff. But the case they're investigating leads them into the idea that there is some kind of cult doing murders and sort of occult ceremonies which I love uh, I love all that sort of thing I love it in fiction and um, I I'm fascinated by examples where people claim this has really happened in reality and it's very it's very subtle in the show even with the whole series you never find out too much about this cult it's only ever hinted at and the entire episodes go by where there's nothing supernatural there's nothing occult and there's not even all that much revealed about the nature of the cult as well which makes it more interesting, honestly. It makes it a little bit... Um, it it kind of allows your brain and your imagination to do a lot of the work. And there are, of course, famously elements in there from The King in Yellow, which is kind of my link to the main theme of uh, some upcoming episodes that we've got, which is, of course, genre fiction from the 1890s, um, written by Robert W. Chambers. And it's basically sort of pre-Lovecraftian cosmic horror type stuff. And there's only very few elements of that in True Detective. And I might have to do an episode where I, I compare the show to the book just to... Just an interesting thing we might do in the future. Anyway, 
The reason I'm talking about this is I've always loved all that stuff and I've enjoyed it. This time round, with all of the research and um, attention I've been paying to the QAnon phenomena, certain aspects of True Detective I now find a little bit troubling, so bear with me. In True Detective, we get just hints that there is a vast conspiracy, a vast, um, a large cult behind everything, and they have people in the highest levels of power. Now, in the show, it only covers sort of the governors and the police of Louisiana, but who knows, the implication is that this might be a lot bigger and a lot older. It's been going on for at least 100 years from what we learn in the show, and they're basically made out to be some sort of generic devil worshippers, although the show doesn't really commit on this, but they do terrible things specifically to children. They kidnap children, they do rituals to them, they do uh, some, some form of satanic ritual abuse, and all of this is played off very seriously. These people are shown to be terrible, terrible, terrible people, and there's no ambiguity about the fact that this is happening, and that it's bad, and that these people are literal, sort of, you know, bloody-handed satanist uh, children kidnappers. Now, if any of that sounds familiar to you, it's because you've been paying attention also to the QAnon phenomena. If you've not, and you don't know what I'm talking about, please check out our episode about QAnon. It was maybe four or five episodes ago. And what I'm coming to understand really is that this is an ongoing phenomena. This idea that like a secret group who run everything, who in particular like the obsession with paedophilia, the obsession with capturing children, it goes back to medieval times, it goes back to some really, really terrible ideas about Jewish people in particular, it's just always the Jews, the blood libel, it it includes the, the, the forgery that was the Priory of Zion around the turn of the 20th century, and it also includes the 1980s satanic panic, and, and some of these things that I guess I used to read about and imagine were, were just these really odd outbursts that just kind of happened rather spontaneously, they are, I'm beginning to see they are manifestations of some, some of the same fears, anxieties, and unfortunately the same scapegoating that happens over and over again. And the latest version of that, of course, is QAnon, the all-encompassing conspiracy theory in which everything that the Q people don't like is the result of, you guessed it, an evil elite shadowy cabal who have people in the highest places, who uh, deliberately kidnap, ch- specifically kidnap children, Uh, and do bad satanic things to them. And I'm not saying that the people who wrote True Detective, like, were in on this, or knew about it. Obviously, QAnon was not to exist for several years uh, when the show was made. But they are playing with the same ideas that have been been used for, for bad reasons over the years. Obviously, a lot of innocent people went to prison in the 80s when the satanic panic happened. If you want to go back further in time, terrible things were done to Jewish people for kind of the same unsubstantiated reasons, the same unsubstantiated rumours. So I just found this material a little distasteful, even though the show is still great, I still enjoy it, there's a lot of things to admire in it, but I now see it as perpetuating a particular type of myth which has been anything but harmless over the course of history. So... Perhaps you have your own thoughts on that. Perhaps you would agree or not agree. Uh, By all means, do get in touch. Anyway, that's enough preamble. That's just something that came into my head this week while I was doing something else. But we are not here to talk about that today. We are here to talk about John James Audubon and the mysterious Washington Sea Eagle, which is a fascinating story that 
Uh, I couldn't believe, just as I was finishing research, that somebody had written an incredibly important paper on this, and this is a very, very new thing, uh, and lots of great information has just come out. Speaking with me on this episode is an old friend, Brent Burton, who worked with me when I was back in the US a few years ago. Uh, Brent is a scientist, naturalist, and science educator, and I'm very proud to have him on the show. So here we go. Brent, you are in the Pacific Northwest, is that correct? Yes, yes. Have you, seen, current... have you seen the fires? Are you anywhere close to that? So I, I haven't seen the fires um, located in Seattle where kind of the Cascade Mountain Range nestles us away from any of that scary stuff. But we did have a few weeks of insane smoke um, where it was just, un, you know, worst air quality in the world which I was not used to. I pretty much just stayed inside for two straight weeks and it was, it was brutal. It, it really was. Um, I mean, I think in perspective though, compared to like what's, what was happening down South of us in Oregon and, and in, in Eastern Washington, not that bad. Like nothing was really burning. You know, we were, we were relatively safe, but, but just being stuck inside really kind of you get, 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 get go a little loopy, you know, after a while. So Did you get those crazy apocalyptic skies. Yes. Oh yeah. Where the sun is orange and um, you, you walk outside and it's like just a haze. Everything wow. is just a haze out there. It was, it was pretty wild. Um, let me see. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about it and I was just like, we're supposed to get some more smoke this upcoming week. Uh, I don't think it's going to be as bad, but some of the nicer weather is, is pulling smoke in. So I, Hopefully we won't have a smoke out round two, but you know, we'll see. We worked together in the Midwest um, years ago and um, we both have, uh, we both ha have been uh, working in the field of biology or being naturalists as they tend to call it over at your end, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I went to the university of Wisconsin, Madison, uh, studying wildlife ecology and history uh, and then realized uh, kind of going through that that I really enjoyed the education side of things so I, I went and uh, became an environment educator that's what connected me with Kean. we worked up in northern Minnesota and it was just oh, it was such a fun time you betcha so um, you you've done some work with with raptors and when we say raptors we don't most people out there who are not naturalists will of course think Jurassic Park which is great but we're not talking about those kind of raptors we're talking about predatory birds. What, what's your background with predatory birds, Brent? Yeah, so uh, my, my background in ornithology actually kind of starts back when I was an undergrad. I, I worked as a nest surveyor. So I would, I'm sorry, I would wake up at about you know, like four every morning uh, for a summer and we'd go out uh, to different state parks in the area and look for, for nests, which it's awesome. It's a great job. I mean, granted, you have to wake up super early, but you're out in nature by yourself in some of these most beautiful areas. Um, my, my favorite part, though, of that, uh, which kind of brings it relevant to what we're talking about today, was we stayed at Elder Leopold's um, grand or daughter's house, which was just kind of where his famous shack was, uh, Leopold being the famous father of wildlife ecology type thing. And we would, we would joke about this as we were sitting. We, we spent a lot of time just sitting in the house when we had downtime watching birds at the bird feeders. 
And, you know, we, we'd see at some points just, you know, 40 different species and it'd be like, you know, maybe one of us would have walked away and someone would be like, oh man, and an orchard oriole, you know, kind of a, a little bit of a rarer bird to see. And the, uh, the rest of us would run over and we, you know, you miss it and be like, oh man. Uh, and, and we would always joke like, you know, back in the day, you know, if it was Leopold, you know, like you would, or these old time naturalists, they'd be like, oh, look, and orchard oreo and he would just like reach into their sack and pull it out because you know instead of using binoculars you'd be hunting them you know you'd, you'd go out yeah. and just grab your your rifle and that was that was what it was so it's just it's it's a completely different game now i mean uh you're not supposed to shoot songbirds or anything like that but no. it's just like, <laughs> we just thought it'd be so funny it's like yeah you know back in the day but like, yeah i saw an orchard oreo day cool and be like here i'll show it to you <laughs> It's just not, it's not like that anymore. Uh, but anyway, my, my work with the Raptors, um, I worked at uh, the Wolf Ridge uh, Environmental Learning Center and they had a, a live raptor program. So uh, at the center at the time, we had a great horned owl, a red-tailed hawk um, that we would actually do programs with uh, different students coming in where we'd fly them and, and kind of walk through their life history. It was, you know, it, I had never done kind of a live animal presentation before uh, and, and that was really cool. It's, it's a whole different way of really intimately showing these uh, different, you know, birds. They get to actually meet the birds instead of just being like, oh, look, there's a, you know, red-tailed hawk out in the, the distance. It's, here's a red-tailed hawk. It's 10 feet from you. you know, that's just such a big difference. Um, you know, you can see them and they fly right over your head. It's, you can feel almost the powerful wing beat coming down. And, and that I think is super impactful. Um, and, and, and these birds that we worked with, of course, were all being rehabilitated. Um, there were different reasons why they couldn't be released out into the wild. Um, so it wasn't like we just had these wild birds that we caught and brought in, but it was, it was done in a very um, responsible way, trying to give them the best life that we, we could, barring that they couldn't be out in the wild where they belong. We, we better get to the to the meat of this, Brent. So we're going to be talking about Audubon. So for for our listen about, about about half of our listeners are American. I don't know what percentage of them might be naturalists. Uh, he's a big name in the U.S. and amongst naturalists, but uh, outside of that, people might not know. So who is this guy, Audubon, Brent? Well, it's interesting. Um, you, you live in the U the U.S. and you've heard the name Audubon. Like you just it's everywhere, whether it's street names, parks, schools. Um, you know, I, I think back, I don't know how many people actually even in the U.S. know who this guy is, um, other than, you know, the Audubon Society being maybe the largest conservation group. Maybe, I mean, I'm in the Nature Conservancy in the United States. You know, I, I think a lot of people probably take uh, his name for granted as well, but he was he was a, a, a painter, he was a naturalist, he was... Um, you know, at the time when he was alive, probably one of the leading ornithologists. And I, I think he really was one of those people that brought, um, you know, birds and, and ornithology to, to the forefront, you know. Um, and, and birding as a hobby. I mean, in the U.S., his name is all over it. And, yes. And he's, yes. A, he's a celebrity. He's, he's like the father of American ornithology. He's a huge, big name. And therefore, some of the stuff we're going to say about him, uh, some, of the, some of the recent information that's come out about him, um, it makes, makes for very interesting reading, shall we say. Yeah, I mean, the thing with him, too, is, you know, he has, with his name, it's, it's very attached uh, to conservation. It, it's, it's one of those things where, oh, shoot, I just forgot my train of thought. Crap. Oh, 
That's he a was good point. he was a strange guy, and what I, what I was fascinated about reading up on this was how much personalities play into this, and how much like uh, you, you know. I mean, originally I started reading about this case uh, from a zoological point of view, and I was interested in the zoology of it. But quickly I realized this is more got to do with like character and motivation, and where he was in his life and what he was trying to achieve. And I think that we're going to get to the answer. Well, a little bit of both, I think, it will be necessary. Yeah, I think in the case of, of what we're talking about today, I, that does have a, a point. You know, you're trying to make it in a time where there's, you're at the forefront. You know, there is in the United States at the time, the West was largely unexplored. Um, I mean, I think that he published Birds of America, um, his kind of his opus, his big book, just, you know, a few years after Lewis and, you know, Lewis and Clark had gone out. So there's, there's a lot of unknown. And I, I mean, I think that's really what, plays into our topic today. One of my sources for this is a book called This Species Seekers by Richard Conniff. And it's, it's absolutely brilliant. It's about, the subtitle is Heroes, Fools, and the Mad Pursuit of Life on Earth. And it's just about how biology and, and uh, like creation or kind of cataloging of species took off as a mania for, at about this time, sort of like 1700s, 1800s and how it was a fashionable thing for people to do. And there was just this madness and this fad for doing it. And it's about all the different characters who were on the scene at this time and how they interacted and how they feuded. And there's loads of really funny stuff in it. And I'm, I'm going to be dipping in and out of it as we go. But let's, Brent, let's, let's print the legend first, as they say. So we're talking about these, uh, the Washington Sea Eagle, a, a, myth, a near mythical bird, a bird Audubon chronicled in his key books in the early 19th century, but which like standard science to this day says doesn't exist. So what was up with him? Where did he get this idea from? We have this guy who was like the most well-renowned birder of his of his day. And yet he insisted to his dying day that this bird larger than any other eagle in North America existed, despite the fact that nobody else ever had any evidence for it. So I'm going to paraphrase a little bit from uh, Carl Schuker, who's a well-known cryptozoologist. And I'm just gonna just gonna tell the story. So Audubon claimed that in about February 1814, he was going up the Upper Mississippi with a companion who was a Canadian fur trader, when they had a sighting of an eagle bigger than any known eagles, uh, something in the region of about three meters across on the wingspan, I believe. Uh, and his companion then said, "Oh, this we know this. This is the great eagle, and I've seen it once before in the Great Lakes." Audubon then became convinced that this is a new species and over the next few years he sees it three or four more times but he doesn't ever get a chance to shoot it as you said that was the done thing at the time in fact science required a type specimen before you could announce that you had a new species so um, a few years later he's in a place called Henderson Kentucky and he he sees one of these birds an adult um, attacking or eating a pig so he has the gun and he finally gets his specimen. Uh, so he packs up the corpse and he takes it to a friend of his named Dr. Adam Rankin, who takes a look and claims, yes, this must have been a new species. I've never seen it before. They go over the body, they make all their notes and he writes up a description. So obviously another part of uh, zoology at this time and uh, as now you have to write a, a description. So he says that the bird is about 14 and a half pounds it's about three feet, seven inches in length and about 10 feet across, which makes it a very large bird for North America. And he paints a famous painting of it. 
um, which most people I think would agree looks fairly close to a juvenile bald eagle. And that is his story of where this, uh, where this bird comes from. So he makes his name on this book, Birds of America, in the 1820s. This makes his fortune. He's not, a, he's not a rich man prior to this. And this is when his fortunes turn around. And he makes his fortune also based on a trip he makes to England in, uh, at the beginning of 1826, when he takes some of his original paintings and primarily pride of place is given to what he calls a Washington Sea Eagle. And the great and the good of British scientific society going up as high as the king himself are absolutely thrilled with this. And he, he goes from zero to hero in about a year. So that's the short, short version of the story. Within a couple of years, other scientists start to point out the holes in his story. They start to point out the lack of evidence, the fact that the case for the bird um, is not very convincing, chiefly because there is no body, there is no type specimen. But, you know, for the rest, for the next 100, 200 years, until quite recently, uh, people who are interested in cryptozoology have investigated this story and, you know, picked little bits out of it and kind of were doing their best to make the case like maybe there is something interesting here. We have a guy who's top of his game who says that he saw this animal and not only him, a few other people reported sightings in the years around this. And uh, I always thought it sounded very interesting. I only came across it a couple of months ago, to be honest. And just this week, as I was researching for this episode, I found out that only a couple of months ago, a new paper has been published going into the details of this. And we, we will get to that at the end. So that's yeah, my kind of, <laughs> that's my opening Yeah, that's something spiel. that's still relevant. This is something that, that people are still talking about to this day, um, you know, like that new paper. But, um, you know, the in the North America, in, in the United States especially, there's uh, generally thought to be only two types of eagles, the bald eagle, um, or uh, which is a type of sea eagle, and then the golden eagle, which is a much larger eagle. Um, this Washington eagle that he that Audubon found, bigger than all of them. Um, I, I was trying to look, as I was doing research for this, as to what you could compare, like size-wise this would be, and it would be like a host eagle, um, which was a kind of a Polynesian, I believe Polynesian, um, eagle uh, found on an island that was extinct 400 years before Audubon even wrote about this. Um, it, it's just the the bird that he claims he 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 sees is just a huge bird, um, larger than anything. I mean, I think six inches, seven inches larger than longer than probably the largest eagle out there today. So, um, you know, it's it's one of those birds that. If you were going to see it, you would you would be like, you could see it. You know, it would be a huge bird. Um, I I do find it interesting that his kind of his his bigger audience for this, uh, especially for Birds of America, um, was in the UK in Britain, um, being that they won't know. You know how how are you going to fact check? <laughs> um, you know, is this eagle out there? I mean. That would be awesome. But you know, he's, he's more... careful. Not, on, not only is he debuting this bird in Britain, but he's doing it very carefully after um, a number of people have died who might have been able to call him out on something, which we will also get to. <laughs> yeah, he, he puts it as, as a high, you know, and, and the thing that, that puts it towards this could be out here you're trying to sell books is that he, he puts this at number 13. I mean, this is one of his, his first plates that he puts in his book. It's right forefront in the center of 
look at this giant magnificent bird and, and you think you know this is america you're gonna think washington eagle whoa and there's evidence also that he, bird. he changed the name so he had a different name for it which you can still see on the on the painting if you look closely showing that when he came over to england on the boat and he had this painting done he was originally going to call it something else but at some point after he landed the idea came to him i know i call it the washington eagle because then it will be symbolic of America. And this, it seems to have been a very trendy thing in Britain at the time, which is very, very interesting to me how, how things were between those two countries post the, the revolution. But, you know, it, it was cool and trendy to be promoting, you know, certain ideas of America and, you know, the symbol of America to be a powerful, virile nation. There was something sexy about it. This was the biggest bird. This was the first one on his... Uh, on his um, he did exhibitions in Liverpool and in Edinburgh when he came to England first. And this was the first, the first picture everybody saw when they came in. And he had deliberately given it this powerful name of Washington, who was this revolutionary hero and the symbol of America. The, the name really threw me off when I, when I first got into researching this bird. Um, living in Washington State, Sea Eagle, I was thinking, you know, nest on cliff sides. I'm like, you know, uh, maybe it's a Stuller's Eagle from kind of up in Russia that might have got blown over into uh, Washington State and then reading deeper and realizing that he only saw this in the Midwest. It's like, well, there goes that theory. Just, just throw that out the window. And most, people after George trying, most people trying to debunk this on zoological grounds tend to try and point out that he must have been seeing immature bald eagles, which look similar to they when they're younger, they don't have the famous white head. They're brown all over and they look mm-hmm. more close, similar to uh, what he painted and what he described. But the interesting thing about that, and, and this is what throws me for a little bit of a loop, is Audubon would know what a immature bald eagle looks like. Yeah, there's, you know, pl- there's he, plenty he, of evidence that he did. He's he's painted them. Um, there are stories of him going to, you know, different mounts or, or seeing live specimen collected of Washington's eagle, and him saying, "No, that's a immature bald eagle." And you know, eventually, when they grew their white head, it being proven right, but. You know, it, that's that's what that's that's the thing that makes it really kind of hard to add up. Is Audubon has seen he probably saw countless immature bald eagles. And I mean, uh, this was a time when like things were a little bit wild and woolly, and not everything was known yet. But yeah, I mean, the evidence is clear that he and and people have gone through his diaries and shown that you know he he did go through a period of believing that. There was a larger eagle out there that you know looked like a, a juvenile bald eagle, but but that the ones he had seen didn't prove it. At least at some point in the eighteen tens, he yeah. knew better, as you say. Yeah, he should. He should. But there's been, um, you know, you look. There's countless other species that, you know, people would have no evidence that he's presented. Like he he put in birds that all the people have never seen in his his work. So. Who's to say Washington Eagle isn't one of those? You know, that's that, that kind of throws a haze in there. Well, I'm going to add a little, I'm going to do another quote here from the Scott Maruna article, which I think you've read as well. And this, I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. You can read it. It's quite extensive. But I, this is just to add a little extra. It says, in fact, many others have also reported seeing the bird. In 1838, Edward Harris told Audubon he had seen the majestic eagle, Kirk, Kirtland, these are all 19th century ornithologists and zoologists, recorded a first-hand sighting in 1842 in Ohio. 
And there's a few more that I, I honestly, I haven't found much more information about, so I can't either agree or refute them. But the most interesting one here is by a fellow called Harlan, Richard Harlan. Now, Richard Harlan, the esteemed author of Fauna Americana in 1825, wrote to Audubon that he had acquired a specimen from the Brano Museum, where Audubon had earlier examined it and declared it identical to his rendering. Audubon, too, had attempted to purchase this specimen, but could not afford the price asked. Harlan says he subsequently deposited in the collection of the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia. The current whereabouts of this specimen are unknown. Now that sounds, you know, on the top of it, that sounds kind of convincing. Other people were seeing this animal and there were specimens known and kept in, in kind of serious sounding museums. But this fellow Richard Harlan seems to have been, I, like I found some quotes saying that he was a bit of a cad and a bit of a, a bit of a con man and that he was not welcome in various gentlemen's associations because of his low down behavior. <laughs> well, I, I think too, back to that time, you know, um, and it's, you know, when the circuses are popular, even into like the 1900s, like they would frequently claim things that weren't true. Um, you know, if he's showing this to general public or people that aren't really known in orthological circles, like they might not know any better either. So, you know, where, where's the, the proof on that? Um, the thing that always gets me with these, these stories is, you know, they have the specimen and then the specimen always seem to get like lost over time. Like yeah, I, I get it. 200 years has been a it's long time, but it's always, yeah. always, it's always the Smithsonian as well. Like they're always yep. the ones hiding all the evidence. <laughs> I mean, that's where the Holy Grail is. If Indiana Jones is, if you believe. So, you know, how are we to know? Um, so, I mean, I'm going to read a little bit about uh, Audubon himself to just to, we see what kind of a guy he was. So this is, mostly from the, the Species Seekers book, but he, he had a crazy life. He was like the son of a pirate, a privateer, like in, in what's now Haiti. And he, chances are his father, like he, he was born by a, a liaison between his father and like a, probably a, a mixed race mistress, which would have been, you know, scandalous at the time. And he then, he was, he was snuck into, I mean, they were French and he was snuck into America on a faked passport to avoid being conscripted by France for war uh, crazy life you know and yeah and ended up in um, Pennsylvania primarily and, and spent a lot of his kind of late teens and early 20s as far as I can make out tr desperately trying to get into the scientific establishment of Philadelphia and he was he was rebuffed over and over again and he was quite bitter about this and um, by the time he leaves to go to England in 1826 He's writing letters to people saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a failure. If, if I can't make this book, if, if they don't buy my book, Birds of America, I'm done for. This is my last chance. So for him, psychologically, everything was, everything was writing on this. And he also had this like ongoing um, feud with another well-known American ornithologist by the name of Alexander Wilson. So in, in The Species Seekers, it says that Wilson basically is trying to sell his own book, American Ornithology. And he comes into this, he, come, he drops into a shop um, and the shop is being run by, as it turns out, uh, Audubon, because he's, he's a shopkeeper at this point. That's, that's what he does. So Wilson makes the sales pitch for his American Ornithology, which would become the essential guide for the nation's birds and establish him as the father of American Ornithology. And the shopkeeper was about to sign up, uh, but just then, his business partner called out in French from the next room that the shopkeeper's own drawings were surely far better. <laughs> so, uh, 
basically it turns out the shopkeeper was John James Audubon, who then brought out his own portfolio and spread it open on the counter. And this was the beginnings of what would become years later, the greatest picture book ever published, His Birds of America. And this That's was the thing Audubon has going from him, um, honestly, is that he's one of the, the best painters um, yeah. of, of that time, uh, especially when it came to birds. I mean, he spent his life doing it and, you know, uh, he had many other business attempts that failed, you know, trying to get into the mining uh, business. He tried doing a general store, didn't work. Um, uh, the only time he really found success was when he was selling his paintings. And, you know, that, that was his window into this part of society, you know, scientifically he wasn't thought of very highly. Um, but, when it came to drawing birds, I, he was doing the most accurate uh, description, you know, that were out there at the time. So when he, he comes, when he comes to England, he shows up in Liverpool and he has a, he's got letters of introduction to the right, some of the right people, at least, uh, despite being denied entrance into the, uh, you know, the scientific organizations back in Philadelphia. But he has this uh, show for his paintings and he's done some of the paintings himself of, you know, the beginnings of what he intends to be his book. And it's, he's well-received. Lots of people come to see it. He's starting to make the right connections. He's meeting the right scientific people. He goes up to Edinburgh. This, he has su some success there. But then the guy who he hires to help complete the paintings for him in Britain pulls out. And he, again, he panics and he becomes depressed and he thinks, oh, I'm finished. This is all over. And, and by complete chance, he's in London and he meets another naturalist who's just passing through, a fellow called Bonaparte, who's on his way back to America. And Bonaparte says to him, oh, just by the by, why don't you come to this uh, dinner or a talk or something? He takes him to a, a social event. And at this social event are all the great and good of the British scientific establishment. And he brings his books and his, he brings his paintings and they are absolutely knocked out by it. And all the top brass of British biology and science, they fall for his painting of the sea eagle, of, of the great sea eagle of Washington sea eagle. They fall for it hook, line, and sinker. And he immediately is able to finance his book. He immediately has all these wealthy backers and he's made all the right friends. And, and you know, eventually like people like Darwin come to see him lecture and don't really have anything critical to say about him. And he really gets, that's kind of his moment when he has his breakthrough. And it really, I think you've got to understand the psychological situation he must have been in to try and see like, why would a guy who we now hold in such high regard. You know, it's hard for us to think that he would pull off a fraud like this, but if you think about what was at stake for him personally and what the financial stakes were, it makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, I mean, part of it too, is it's who do you know um, in, in this day and age? You know, knowing Bonaparte, one of the leading ornithologists and, and having that in is going to get you a lot of credibility where as you were saying, he's not finding that elsewhere. So, I mean, that's, that's a lot of, I think this time period too, is just who do you know? How well do you socialize? Can you connect with the right people? And, you know, you have Darwin on your side. Well, that puts a lot of weight behind what you have to say. Yeah. Um, that, that was a Darwin was a little bit later. I just dropped him in because he's well known, but um, he's making, he's making the right connections. Now, one thing I did find just trying to judge what his character must've been like to see like, how much stock to put into this new information. So it's known that he did absolutely pull off pranks before and he did invent fictional creatures um, for various reasons. So there's an article called Pranked by Audubon, Constantine S. Raffinesque's description of John James Audubon's imaginary Kentucky mammals. This is by Neil Woodman. And 
I'll just read the abstract briefly. The, the North American naturalist, Constantine S. Raffinesque, who also sounds like a completely mad character. He shows up a lot in the Species Seekers and um, he's, he sounds, he's saying he basically, he's, he's insane. He's, he's got a madness for finding new species and he sees them everywhere. Like he, he, the book says that he, he, if you took him down to show him a plant, he would say, oh, not only have you discovered a new species, you've discovered a new genus. And, and he was a, what we call a splitter in biology, where you want to create as many different species as you can. We have lumpers and splitters. The lumpers want to say, no, no, these animals are all probably the same species. You're just looking at them in, you know, different subpopulations or different morphs. And then the, the splitters want to split them up and say, no, you've got 10 different species here. And he was definitely one of those. So in the year 1818, this guy is uh, on a solo journey down the Ohio River Valley. Along the way, he visits a number of fellow naturalists and he spends a week at Henderson, Kentucky, which is where John James Audubon lives. And during the succeeding two years, Raffinesque published descriptions of new species that resulted from the expedition, including 11 species of fish that eventually proved to have all been invented by Audubon as a prank. <laughs> Including, including one that supposedly has bulletproof scales. I want that fish on my side. <laughs> if I'm ever going into war, like just give me a lo legion of those guys. Yeah, that I mean, that that could be motivation right there. Like supposedly you're, you're gonna you're gonna go for it. Um, so he seems to have done it because Raffinesque destroyed a violin that he had. So it, there's a bit, I've got a, a oh quote here gosh. from, I know. So, petty. Maybe, so he's got a, he's got a little petty streak to him. He woke up in the middle of the night and he found that Raffinesque was like smashing his violin inside in his bedroom. And he said, you know, what are you doing? And he, he said, Raffinesque said that some bats came in the window and he was so convinced <laughs> that they were a new species that had been undiscovered that he had to kill them. So he, you know, type specimen. So he grabbed the nearest thing, which was, um, Audubon's violin and just have a hat at them and in, in the diary Audubon says something like um, although I was convinced of the contrary I took up the bow of my demolished Cremona and administering a smart tap to each, each of the bats as it came up soon got specimens enough <laughs> gosh <laughs> they got you know, and you get your bats yeah I mean the thing about this time frame is is something that you kind of I feel like is lacking in today's age is just there's a mystery to the world yeah. that you don't you don't see there's a lot of unknown um you could go down to South America I know like Humboldt um you know just ten a couple decades earlier had been down in his trips to South America and and discovers new species left and right I mean the world was a relatively still unknown place you have most of the American West that nobody's seen you know and if there's a pressure at all to be like, I need to be at the forefront of science, I need to be at the forefront, well, how hard would it be to either misinterpret something uh, that you, you think you is new, but really people have seen already, or just completely make something up just so you're, you're at the forefront? I mean, that's, that can't be that difficult this time. It's not like yeah. there's an internet where they can just fact check you and be like, oh, yeah, um, you know, these days and age. There's eBird, you know, that, yes. or you could, you know, people are out there and everyone's putting everything out there. Like if there's a Washington Eagle out there in North America, you think, unless it's in a very remote place way up in Northern Canada, like somebody's going to have seen it. It's just, there's a lot of eyes out there and they're all sharing that information. They couldn't share information that well. They'd have to hand write out each of their yeah. letters. 
Uh, and, you know, I mean, they're much better at writing letters than we are today, but like, that's like, can you imagine hard to share info? Can you imagine cross-referencing that kind of information with people in different countries? And I mean, Linnaeus invented the binomial system just so that people from different countries would even know what bloody species they're talking about. You know, how do we know if we're talking about the same thing? If you speak yeah. Dutch and I speak Flemish or whatnot. Well, you're getting information from other sources too, you know, like, oh, I, I heard this, but I read it from a letter that was kind of told to me from this other guy. And it's just like the information is disseminating and you know, every step you go down, something might get lost. But some in, sources in I've come across one, have emphasized the fact that, be that as it may, there was a process in place. You know, there was an accepted way of doing these things. And even though it was difficult and like, you know, you might never get to see the type of specimen of a particular, you know, if you were in, in Philadelphia and your type of specimen is in Holland, you know, how are you going to go and see it? And they couldn't even hold on to the type of specimens for that long because, you know, before a certain point, they had no way really of, you know, taxidermy wasn't much of a thing. They couldn't keep these things around to, to see visually. And yet he's, they still make the point that, you know, these guys were daft to accept Audubon's word for these new birds without, without the physical bodies. He was claiming that the painting he did was based on one that he actually killed himself, but nobody ever saw it. So, you know, even, even though, yes, it was difficult to get information, there was a process in place. And these guys were just so, they were so jazzed up about the idea of the Washington Eagle. It just sounded like such a badass thing. They, <laughs> I guess they, they wanted to believe, you know? Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. The one person that uh, claimed has, to have seen that one in Kentucky was his friend. You know, that's, if I'm going to go back into a scientific and be like, oh, yeah, my, my friend Keen saw this, like, <laughs> I mean, maybe, but you're going to back me up most likely. Well, right let's let's talk about the, the latest articles. So in June 2020, a fellow named Matthew R. Halley wrote an article called Audubon's Bird of Washington Unraveling the Fraud that Launched the Birds of America. And this guy spent something like 10 years going through all the primary sources. So he says that for, for you know, 200 years, people have taken Audubon's um, biographical work at face value. When he, in fact, he was a total self-promoter. He was a self, he was a reinventor. He was always claiming that he had done things, you know, and he pushed them back into history. He was retroactively backdating things. He, he claimed to be the first um, bird ringer in America when he wasn't even in America at the time. And, and like, really, really great stuff. But one of, the, one of the interesting things he says, he gives another perspective on this story of the, the Philadelphia specimen. So cutting back to this fellow, Richard Harlan, who was the guy who was banned from all of the gentlemen's clubs. <laughs> so what actually happened was Harlan contacted Audubon and said, hey, you know, there, there's, a, there's a bird in this public garden, you know, captive, and I think it's one of these uh, Washington eagles. So they go and take a look. And uh, I mean, Audubon presumably knows there's no such thing, right? So he sees, he sees what's clearly a juvenile bald eagle. And he knows he's going to get caught if he agrees that it's a Washington Eagle. So he, he tells the truth and he says, no, man, I don't think so. I think that's a, a juvenile bald eagle. And, and Harlan's like, no, no, no way, man. It's, it's, it's totally this new bird. So they make a bet, you know, if it grows the white head within so many years and it proves to be a bald eagle, then um, Audubon wins the bet. So then what happens is Richard Harlan goes into some local taxidermist who's got a stuffed one. He's got a stuffed juvenile bald eagle, all brown. Looks like the looks like the, the Washington Eagle. And this time, Audubon says, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's one. That's 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 what I saw." Because he it's stuffed, so he knows that's not going to grow up and you know catch him out. 
Oh, that's the way to do it. And, and the thing too is all you need is a, a judicious guy, you know, stuffer, someone who, who puts a little bit too much stuffing in and you got yeah. yourself a big eagle, you know? And I and, presume Audubon is like, oh, this guy is a zoologist. He's not, a, or I think he's a mammalologist. He's not necessarily an ornithologist. I'm probably going to get away with this. But then when he's out of the country, Harlan writes to him one day and says, hey, you know that stuffed uh, Washington eagle? Yeah, I bought it and I, I gave it to the Philadelphia um uh, academy of natural sciences and audubon must have been like oh oh shit <laughs> oh man you gotta <laughs> and then the i don't know this was down the road but the that museum happened to burn down you know i just it's all fishy to me I, <laughs> well it was more like boss, for some reason like, I, th I think I'm of all just, people like, that guy bonaparte came by and looked at it and said that's not a that's a <laughs> that's a bold you know about i mean that's the thing that they they teach you um you know when you're in an ornithology class one of the things with eagles is you see a, um, a juvenile bald eagle that's very close to like right before it turns its head. That's a big bird. And you're thinking like golden eagle, maybe like juvenile golden. Like it's, it, the, it's tough to really kind of narrow in, especially if you don't have great like equipment. Um, you know, binoculars these days are way better than they used to be in the past, but like, it's not, a, it, it's an easy bird to confuse. You know, I can see how if you see something from a distance and say, well, that's a really big brown eagle and, you know, you, you don't think it's a golden eagle, like that could be something you haven't seen before. You know, that it makes sense to me. Like it's, it's a tricky, it's a really tricky kind of, you know, classification, really tricky find. Oh, another thing that uh, Hallie mentions here, which is, is hilarious, is that so the, the painting, the famous painting of the Washington Eagle in, he reckons is is ripped off from an, an older painting from an encyclopedia that would have been you know very popular in american scientific institutions at the turn of the 19th century and that audubon himself almost certainly would have had access to it and it basically he breaks down the picture and says actually it's made up of different morphological parts of different kinds of raptors none of which should be together on one bird certainly not one that's supposed to be some kind of eagle and the best part of all was that this image, like it's no, the original one that he's ripping off, it's known where it came from with this encyclopedia. And one of the guys who worked on the encyclopedia and probably would have recognized the image was uh, Wilson, the guy that Audubon had been feuding with. But Wilson had been dead for a few years by the time he made his trip to England. So he probably knew he was going to get away with it. Yeah, I mean, the thing that they always bring up um and Morano um, even was saying this is one reason why he thinks that there was maybe the Washington Eagle was the the scales on the, the talons you know uh, one of the things that set birds apart are those talons great for grabbing their prey locking into place and letting them fly away but the the scales that you see on the Washington Eagle are unlike any other eagle that you know it's not like a bald eagle it's not like a golden eagle but then I'm looking at this this photo of the the one that he might have ripped off and it's almost exactly the same so it's like hmm you know it, it raises question as to that could be an inspiration right there like well he knew his birds why did he like why did he rip off these images in a way that created a like a zoologically improbable bird when he he knew his ornithology that's what's strange he, to me he could get away with it you know he, he was I, also I an artist there's, there's no to... like there's no fact checking there's no you know it, it I, I think about it like this too you know the the california condor um extinct in the wild at one point 
someone could could draw a picture of a California, you know, that could be a bird that people could say like this doesn't exist, but like obviously the species come back. Like you could draw a picture of a California condor um, when they weren't in the wild, and people be like, is that really what they look like? You know, like how would you know? I mean, luckily the species rebounded, but like you just say, hey, there's only a couple of these Washington eagles left. That's why we're not seeing them. You know, it's extinct. Like how are we, how are we supposed to know? Or you know, like there's there's no way to back it up so you could go i mean it's it's one of those things where I, especially at the time like really easy to get away with I yeah think. some sometimes i wish i lived back then and i could just like make up make up some creature and get away with it i mean but you see it people do that still to this day um especially with like things like deep fakes and, and things like you know i know with that bigfoot episode there's the that video of bigfoot crossing in russia or something like like you can mess with things with technology these days and, and almost with the same effect. Um, and I don't know if that's more or less effective than back in the day, you know, but. Well, I have two, I have two main questions for you as we, as we get to the, the last chapter of this. Firstly, what are we to do with Audubon? So he's, he's this gigantic figure of, as you say, conservation and, 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 you know, science and, and ornithology in America. He, his name is very powerful. It commands a lot of emotion. It commands a lot of respect. And yet there is this new evidence that chances are he was a bit of a con man, a bit of a chancer, a guy who wasn't afraid to gussy up the scientific evidence uh, for the sake of his own career. What, what are we to make of a man like this today? Oh, you know, as, as an American, you got to respect the hustle. You know, like <laughs> yeah. the, the guy is, is a man who, who knew what had to be done. Um, none of his practices are beyond anything of what, um, uh, some successful people might be doing today, you know, probably lesser <laughs> in some extent. So, so in that regard, yes. Um, you know, it's one of those things too. You you get a 400 species right, and you get like a few wrong. Like, I I think you can still celebrate his work. Um, I think you can certainly still celebrate his legacy. Um, you know, the fact of of the matter is the Audubon Society is you know the forefront it's one of the biggest reasons why we have some of the the natural areas still preserved today that education has gone i mean there's countless nature centers uh in the society that are are really pushing forward environmental education and conservation and you know that legacy alone um i think overshadows anything of the he might have had a practical side you know like a practical joker side to him or or maybe he um you know, made a couple of gaffes to, to mess up. You know, I think in the long run, you know, the, the Washington Eagle, if it's, it's a falsification, which, you know, that's what's looking like, like it, it got found out. Like it's, it's, a, it's such a small little part of what Audubon ended up doing. Like, yeah. you know, is, isn't burning that worth, right now is. Isn't that worth a bulletproof fish and a, a, <laughs> a well, fake eagle? <laughs> well, both, you know, I, I think the BBC alone has done like what spaghetti growing on trees or something like that. Like, yes, <laughs> we all, we all have our quirks, you know, like I can forgive that. I can forgive that. Well, my final question then is, are there any mystery animals that you find interesting that you think there might be a chance that they I could mean, be I wanna, real? I want to follow, like, I, I think this could be something. I mean, you know, I mean, that's the thing, you know, passenger pigeons were millions of them. And yet today you can't find any of them. 
you know, there's, there's, there's a chance that I want to say like, maybe Audubon found one of the last 15 or 20. Like I, 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 I struggle really discredit this one in particular. It just, but I don't know. It just doesn't line up. Like it's <laughs> such a big ego. Like, like I was saying before, I mean, the host ego, like literally an island giant of an ego that had been extinct for our, like just the, the conditions of the United States at the time, just there wasn't necessarily a place for that kind of bird. Um, but man, it would be, it'd be a sight to see, that's for sure. Finally, is, do you have anything um, online you'd like people to go and check out? Anything creative, anything? Oh man, um, I mean, I guess you can follow me on all things naturalist. Um, that's Instagram, one, right? One word on Instagram, um, give, me, give me a follow, I post photos not for like a year, but you know, <laughs> I, occasionally you'll see something, something cool. Uh, if you like nature photos, um, otherwise, I mean, keep supporting this podcast. This is, this is as good as it gets. <laughs> Brent, thank you very much for talking with us today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I mean, this is, it's an honor for sure. And that's it for this episode, folks. Once again, huge thanks to Brent Burton for talking with us. I'm going to very quickly let you know just a few things that will be coming up over the next few weeks as we roll on through October. Things will be getting spookier here at the cabin. Next up, hopefully, fingers crossed all things going well, we will have a Lovecraft episode. We haven't actually had a dedicated Lovecraft episode yet. I think I've found a way, uh, an angle, a thing to talk about that hasn't been done to death. And I have a very, very, very exciting guest on to talk about it. I won't say anything more until it's all done and dusted and the audio is in the can because I don't want to tempt fate, but it's going to be great. I'm super chuffed about who we have on to talk about Lovecraft. Following on that, I'm thinking about doing an Arthur Mackin episode. So we're going to go full, you know, uh, sort of early 20th century, turn of the century, pulp horror. And then we are going to wrap up October, you know, getting towards Halloween, getting towards the launch of the Patreon with a Borley Rectory episode. So lots of good things to look forward to there, folks. If you want to get in touch, as always, we are at Strange Ireland on Twitter. We are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast on Instagram. So as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing